Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. 9-11 forever defined our generation. And ever since, the U.S. government has waged a new kind of global warfare against the ubiquitous threat of terrorism. The gaping hole at ground zero left for five years served as a perpetual reminder of this new and dark era. Finally, a memorial was constructed, a gift shop erected, and a shiny freedom tower built to immortalize the values Americans were told they were attacked for. But families still languished for closure as their loved ones' remains were discarded into a New York City landfill. More than 4,000 human remains were dumped, yet only 300 people ever identified. And the 9-11 heroes used as props for empire were left in the dust, waiting to die in silence. Because of sanctioned EPA lies that the pulverized concrete and asbestos dust cloud was safe to breathe, an estimated 1,300 emergency responders who helped with the cleanup have died from 9-11-related illness so far, more than three times the amount killed that day. Thousands more are dying. Yet the same government that rushed to exploit their sacrifice denied them health care up until 2012, when it was forced to acknowledge the 20% rise in cancer bore direct correlation to ground zero toxicity. The nation was traumatized and re-traumatized by 24-7 corporate war propaganda. And the government seized on a nation in fear to leap to war with no clear enemy or end. With its rabid group of extremist neocons at the helm, the Empire set out to capture a swath of new spoils it had longed to dominate. Guns blazing, they could barely contain their excitement over all the new markets previously out of reach. We got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later and by that time, we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. We were told the only way to prevent another terrorist attack on U.S. soil was to invade and occupy Afghanistan. Conveniently located in an extremely profitable region once out of reach to U.S. business, like the natural gas-rich former Soviet republics of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, and at a crossroads for trade for U.S. business competitors Russia, China, and India. They trumpeted the heroism of saving Afghanistan from a dark, futile past, a new future where women could be free and democracy could replace extremism. Vampire's leaders often don't expect us to take a simple look at history. There was one time in Afghanistan's past where women's rights were advancing and codified into law, where literacy programs for girls and impoverished people were on the rise. This Afghanistan was one the empire paid billions of dollars to destroy. 
In the 70s, the social progress coming from Kabul angered Afghanistan's feudal lords and ultra-conservative religious groups. Forming the Mujahideen, they attacked women's schools and carried out a reign of terror. But the empire felt it had more in common with the Mujahideen than the new government and started pumping millions of dollars in cash, advanced weapons and training into these groups, sponsoring the ongoing atrocities. Excited that the Soviet Union sent its military to support the government, the CIA dumped even more money to fund the Mujahideen. The group even received a grand welcome at the White House. Journalist and author Ahmed Rashid writes about the effect of this U.S. operation. Some 35,000 Muslim radicals from 40 Islamic countries joined Afghanistan's fight between 1982 and 1992. Afghan people don't have a history of being religious zealots. To create the CIA, desired jihad required the recruitment of Arab, Egyptian, and Pakistani extremists. So the fundamentalism that emerged in Afghanistan is a CIA construct. So what groups had their formative years here on the U.S. taxpayer's dime? Oh, just Osama bin Laden and his network and the people who became the Taliban eventually seizing power in 1996. The Clinton administration engaged with and cooperated with the Taliban almost immediately afterward to ensure oil giant Unical's proposed pipelines flowed freely. But with a new opportunity to plant bases in one of the most resource-rich regions of the world, an invasion was launched. The stated goal wasn't ever to capture bin Laden, but rather to destroy al-Qaeda and Taliban training camps in the country. We haven't uh, captured any al-Qaeda, but... And, and how many have you actually managed to kill here in southeast Afghanistan? We haven't killed any. At the outset, the Pentagon's generals were brimming with arrogance about their easy conquest. But occupying a country where 92% have never even heard of what, quote, foreigners call 9-11 didn't prove so simple. And as contempt and resistance to the occupation spread, the war became a military disaster. Casualties for U.S. service members surged. From 2009 to 2010, U.S. troops requiring limb amputations increased 60%, with a 90% increase in severe wounds to their genitalia. So generals and politicians did the only thing they know how to do, lie about the reality and order more slaughter. Heard from their own mouths, Commander of British forces from 2007 to 2008 said the Afghanistan war is neither feasible nor supportable. The American strategy is doomed to fail. Atreus, commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan from 2010 to 2011, said, you have to recognize that I don't think you win this war. This is the kind of fight we're in for the rest of our lives and probably our kids' lives. And Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, who interviewed hundreds of soldiers touring Afghanistan on two separate tours, said, when you're given a mission that cannot succeed, what is the purpose of the mission? How many more men must die behind an array of optimistic statements by U.S. senior leaders in Afghanistan? Like with Vietnam, when the commanders knew they couldn't win, they wanted to make sure to preserve the face of this invincible empire by retreating in slow motion, leaving a trail of bombs and limbs behind them. In 2012, Staff Sergeant Matthew Sitton, on his third tour to Afghanistan, wrote to his congressman, 
I'm only writing this email because I feel myself and my soldiers are being put into unnecessary positions where harm and danger are imminent. There is no end state or purpose for the patrols given to us from our higher chain of command, only that we will be out for a certain period of time. As a brigade, we are averaging at a minimum an amputee a day from our soldiers because we're walking around aimlessly through grape rows and compounds that are littered with explosives. I'm concerned about the well-being of my soldiers, and I've tried to voice my opinion through the proper channels of my own chain of command, only to be turned away and told that I need to stop complaining. Thank you again for allowing soldiers to voice their opinion. If anything, please pray for us. God bless. Very respectfully, SSG Matthew Sitton. He was killed just weeks later, leaving behind a wife and newborn child. To date, 2,355 soldiers have died. An estimated 20,000 have been maimed. What utter contempt for the lives of service members from the people who say most avidly that they support the troops. Now that the end of this slow retreat has come, paved with the lives of at least 26,000 Afghans, the U.S. plans to maintain massive bases there, occupied by 10,000 troops until at least 2024. Afghanistan's new government is far from the bright and democratic future the U.S. promised, but a wildly corrupt one run by warlords, passing laws as repressive as the Taliban. A staggering 90% of the world's opium now comes from Afghanistan, after being nearly eradicated pre-2001. Planning to never leave, officials can only hope that the public doesn't notice the war still churns on, pointlessly throwing more lives away. Now the country's longest war, costing taxpayers a shocking $2 billion a week, Afghanistan was just a stepping stone in the post-9-11 offensive. By late 2002, the empire was already beating the drums for a new war to protect American lives. Dubbed Operation Iraqi Freedom, it was the violent culmination of a policy of aggression spanning both Democratic and Republican administrations. U.S. Attorney General under President Johnson, Ramsey Clark, documented the effects of U.S. bombing and sanctions on Iraq through the 90s. One of the great uh, human disasters of history. Life's never been the same again. For most of these years, most of the people there had no sense of security. The house may blow up at any moment, you know, that sort of problem. And um, far from no progress, uh, hard to stay alive, hard to raise children, hard to get enough food, and constant care about water because <clears throat> most of the supply has been polluted. So it's been a hell on earth since January of 1991. What were the targets of that bombing campaign? It was uh, obviously to destroy um, major life support systems. Um, to, to tear the country down where just living was hard, 
and um, to keep it from coming back. Of course, following the bombing campaign was the sanctions that were employed in Iraq. Ramsey, you, as well as a team of investigators, documented extensively what effects these sanctions had. What were the major findings? The intensity of the bombing, and it was a defenseless country. The uh, sheer tonnage of explosive destruction uh, per capita for that period of time, probably unprecedented in, in history, even the massive bombing in World War II. And um, no real chance for revival. There's been no significant revival. It's been a life of hanging on, hoping for someday, somewhere over the rainbow, um, peace and happiness uh, can come again. The, uh, the cruelty of it in the daily lives of the people over all of these years now um, it would be hard to um, find an equal to in history. It's different because it was a well-developed country and had a good standard of living. But for the people who, after the Iran-Iraq war, but several years between that and what we call the Gulf War. Um, there's been, in terms of where they were and, and where they became to be and remain to this day, there's probably um, suffering of society that level of cultivation uh, systematically maintained the suffering, unprecedented in history. That includes a lot of devastation and death. The country was already decimated, bombed from 1991, yet these sanctions employed took the lives of half a million babies why? Why were these sanctions instilled and what damage did those do? Well, infant mortality, beginning in, in late January, skyrocketed. But um, they ran out of uh, infant formula within weeks. I mean, bad water will take a baby out like that, you know. I mean, old folks like me can. Our insides have been toughened, you know. We've had a lot of bad water over the years. <laughs> but uh, babies, uh, they can go in a couple of hours from bad water. Like with Afghanistan, the arrogant captains of empire thought their new military adventure would be easy. But there was massive, widespread opposition to the American occupation throughout Iraqi society. A common theme when countries are bombed, invaded, occupied, and subjugated by a foreign army 
when a military disaster was clear in the face of a population that would not accept foreign occupation, the Empire lied some more, dropped more bombs, and sent more to die. By the time the Empire was forced to retreat from Iraq, 4,486 U.S. servicemen and women had died, and 31,951 left maimed. But for the Iraqi people, the toll was far, far worse. In a country of only 25 million, one million Iraqis were killed. 800,000 children left orphaned. One in five either killed, wounded, or displaced. And staggering cancer rates from the military's use of banned, radioactive, depleted uranium. And what of Iraq's bright democratic future delivered by the U.S. invasion? The Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS. Dahlia Wasfi, Iraqi-American writer and activist, discusses how Iraq got to this point. From the time that the United States showed up, uh, and with collaboration from UN administrators, there was an effort to divide the country establishing uh, an initial Iraqi governing council, 25-member group that were handpicked by American administrators with consultation from UN administrators. And there was a specific number, they decided a specific number of Shia leaders, specific number of Sunni leaders, and specific number of Kurds. And then I think uh, one Turkmen representing the Turk Turkmen minority in Iraq. But this was historically foreign to, to Iraqi yeah. society. So that was the beginning of it, um, and then came the sectarian death squads, which has really caused the separation of the Sunni and Shia communities of Islam, not only in Iraq, but that is now spread throughout the region. I wanted you to just expand a little bit more on the death squads and, and really how oppressive this regime is and how corrupt it is. This has been such a contributing factor to the emergence of ISIS that has, that has done, brought more brutality to Iraq than ISIS, if only because they've had more time since showing up, since being, uh, you know, elected in 2005. Uh, this is the brutality of the death squads that the people have feared and have been demonstrating against uh, since 2011. Uh, and those demonstrations, uh, comparably, they, they're referred to as part of the Arab Spring. But those demonstrations brutally crushed by the Iraqi government that we're closely tied to. And this is standard for U.S. operating procedure in countries where we install ruthless dictators and uh, to the ex at the expense of the people. And this is, we did the same thing when we helped bring Saddam Hussein to power. And, and we've done it once again, once again embracing people who are committing atrocities. And how strong was Iraqi unity and national identity then compared to now? They divided Baghdad in particular into a Sunni neighborhood, a, a Shia neighborhood, even a Christian neighborhood. It was divided along uh, uh, ethnic and, uh, and, or excuse me, sectarian lines, and that was just not that was that did not exist in Iraq prior to 2003. Given how many times the U.S. has intervened specifically in Iraq. And then you have people today saying, what are we supposed to do? Look at ISIS, look at how brutal they are. I mean, what is your response to those people who continue to invoke military action as some sort of solution to the problems in Iraq today? 
we're pouring gasoline on the fire by continuing to pour arms and monies into the region and uh, to forces who are destabilizing. Um, there is nothing that the U.S. military, they, they're not trained in stabilization. Um, they're, they're trained to pave the way for, uh, to use military might to pave the way for business. This is not about going in to save the day, but that's the major obstacle, is the notion that the U.S. military is a force of good. It's, it's such a powerful myth in this country, and, uh, and unfortunately it still holds today. But every day that passes, we're talking about innocent men, women, and children who are, who are paying the ultimate price for suffering from bombs overhead, from the brutality of an American-backed uh, theocratic dictatorship now instead of a secular one, and from the ruthlessness of, uh, of ISIS. With the rise of ISIS clearly resulting from the U.S. war on Iraq, what has been the empire's response? As if the past few decades didn't happen at all, bombing and sending more troops. But with the empire at the helm once again, only death and chaos can lay in its wake. And already the return of bombs, mostly dropped by the United States, has already stripped the lives of countless innocent people. Air Wars, a team of journalists tracking coalition strikes on ISIS in Iraq and Syria, estimates upwards of 1,500 civilian deaths, despite the Pentagon admitting to only two. Beyond Iraq, though, U.S. intervention in Libya and Syria gave ISIS the space to really gain strength. Well, I, uh, I doubt if ISIS would have come into existence except for U.S. policy. That our foreign policy is not based upon um, human welfare. It's based on uh, military and economic uh, alliances. Economic um, dominating the military's subsidiary to protection of the economic interest. Is there a military solution to ISIS, Ramsey? From the West? I think uh, I think immediate uh, peace with the government and, and uh, Damascus is, is essential to the well-being of the uh, region. And I think if we don't do it, the only reason is that we want to make uh, Syria another Iraq, simply a crushed country for a generation or two, you know, while we can try to learn how to profit from whatever emerges from the ruins. Invasions aside, the war on terror released flocks of flying executioners with a Nobel Peace Prize winning drone king overseeing a kill list and the bombing of seven countries total, including Somalia, Yemen, and Pakistan. Death taunts children from the sky and thousands of people assassinated without due process. Our so-called leaders want the legacy of 9-11 to invoke fear of the rise of Islamic terrorism. But if we just look at reality, it's the very actions by the U.S. Empire that's unleashed this threat to people around the world. From sanctions to invasions, this file lays bare that the biggest terrorist organization in the world today is the U.S. Empire. See, while the establishment incessantly fearmongers the American public about the growing threat of ISIS, while displaying their YouTube propaganda apparatus, 
U.S. Central Command has its own death porn channel, video logging their beheadings by drone. A drop in the bucket of the crimes and chaos the Empire has showered on this region of the world. But amidst its success in completely shredding several countries, it's also revealed a weakness that its greed and arrogance can lead it to disaster. And any crisis for the Empire means new opportunities for the people to expose its lies, its crimes, and to mobilize against it. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against Empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.